Uh, we're so glad you came this morning. You are joining us um, partway through a series that we are in the middle of uh, on relationships, subject of relationships. And I'm going to launch straight in this morning because I'm just conscious of the time. So the, the sub, we've been looking at a whole load of stuff that's available on the website if you want to go back and have a look. But the subject for this morning is how to handle conflict in relationships and how to manage conflict in relationships. Um, when I realized a little while ago that I was... Um, Eva, should I give you my water? Oh, you okay? You got... All right. Um, uh, I was just, just like 10 days ago realized, oh my word, I've got to do a talk on how to handle conflict in relationships. I'd better find out. Um, so I've been uh, studying scriptures desperately, trying to uh, see what it says about how to do this well, and also reflecting back on my own life about moments where there have been conflict and, and what's happened as a consequence of that. And uh, one, one story that came to my mind was when I was um, a baby Christian, really. I'd just become a Christian. I was 16 years old. I'd been dragged along by a friend to this um, camp. And I, I just didn't know anything about how you're meant to behave once you become a Christian. And I, um, I had a girlfriend at the time, and I'd grown up obviously as a teenager learning how to relate to girls as any kind of teenage guy does, which is not well. And I, I then found myself on this camp surrounded by Christians, and there, there was a particular girl who I thought was very nice, and I spent quite a lot of time with her. And I was doing it, as far as I understood my own heart, entirely innocently. I just thought she was great. Um, but I wasn't interested in beginning a relationship with her because I already had a girlfriend. But then one of the helpers on the camp came up to me one afternoon and just said, oh, hey, Andy, um, I'd love to have a word with you. Uh, you know, I'd love to get together with you. And because I was so new to it all, I didn't understand that that's Christianese for I'm going to speak some truth to you in love. So I just happily said, oh, great, let's get together. And uh, we got together and uh, it took him a little while to get to the point, but then he got to the point and he said to me, look, I've been watching the way you relate to this particular girl and uh, I'm not sure that's appropriate and I don't think you should be doing that. And um, honestly, I was completely like blindsided. I had no sense that I was doing anything that was, was untoward. And then um, I just started denying it. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, mate. You're like, I'm not trying anything on. I mean, I've got a girlfriend. Like, what is, what's your problem? And he, he started going on about like, it wouldn't be appropriate if I was doing that with her. And I said, no, because you're 40 and married. Of course it wouldn't be appropriate. Um, but I, did, I just, anyway, I, I got really frustrated with him in this conversation. I remember afterwards we went as a, as a group to do this social action project. We were tidying up this church's graveyard uh, and I still remember them handing me a pickaxe and me trying to work out what I was going to do with it. Obviously, in the end, I just used it to uh, bash the soil. But I got, I got a lot of my anger out through that. And then for the next 48 hours, I still felt really quite cross until, and I can still remember the moment, I was on the uh, minibus on the way home. I had my headphones in because I didn't want to talk to anybody and I had my head leaning against the glass of the window but I was thinking about the conversation and it dawned on me all of a sudden that he was probably right. And that was, as I look back at my, my early years following Jesus, a real turning point for me in, in how I understood my behaviour. And it wasn't the end of the story when I came to Soul Survivor. I still had to be called on that um, by Mike and uh, Ali for, for the year that I was here as an intern until I managed to get my behavior in line. But um, I look back now, and I'll never get to thank that volunteer because I have no idea who he was. But, but one of the things that I'm always going to be grateful for is that he cared enough to confront me on it when it would have been so easy for him not to. 
And as I've uh, looked at conflict, one of the passages that has leapt out to me is from James chapter uh, 3. I'm just going to read one verse from the message translation, the message paraphrase, where it says this. You can develop a healthy, robust community that lives right with God and enjoys its results, which is encouraging. You can develop a healthy, robust community, which is what we're on a journey to becoming uh, even more so. Only, though, it continues, only if you do the hard work of getting along with each other and treating each other with dignity and honor. So healthy, robust community, healthy, robust family, healthy, robust uh, friendships with our, our colleagues or our flatmates or our housemates, healthy, robust relationships with our children, with our partners. That is, that is possible, but we're told here by James that it's only possible if we're willing to do the hard work that it, that it involves. And part of that hard work is learning to deal with conflict in a healthy way. And it's so hard to do this, not least in part because no one ever teaches you how to do it. So it's fascinating that at school we're taught all sorts of stuff about the English language and about biology and chemistry and physics, but no one really ever sits us down and teaches us how to handle conflict well, despite the fact that the ability to handle this kind of stuff well will affect our quality of life hugely. And I've discovered as I've looked at the the subject that there tend to be two types, because obviously we just have a way of handling it, even if we've never been taught how. There tend to be two categories that people fall into when it comes to dealing with conflict. Category number one, the hedgehog. And the hedgehog is the person, and I'm definitely a hedgehog, who when there's conflict, we like to avoid it. Um, but obviously it's going on, so, so we still have to react to it. And the way that hedgehog deals with conflict is they, get, they curl up into a little ball and they get spiky and they get cross and they get moody. But if you ask a hedgehog, how are you? They will say, I'm fine. In a way that communicates the exact opposite of that. But that's how they do it. And the second is the rhino, the hedgehogs and the rhinos. And the rhinos, rather than curling up and going all silent and moody, what rhinos do is they go on the offensive. They go attack. They're aggressive. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to speak some, you know, like I'm going to tell it how it is. And uh, I'm not sure which of those two you fall into, but self-defeating silence or self-destructive aggression, neither are particularly helpful or healthy. And so I've been looking at uh, scripture and trying to, trying to discern from it um, how we might conduct ourselves well. If we want to handle conflict in relationships well, uh, what does it say? I want to share five uh, thoughts from, from the passages that I'm going to read to you. I'm really aware that like a five-step guide is not always very practical with this kind of thing. Um, a lot of conflict happens to be spontaneous. It's very hard in the middle of a spontaneous uh, heated discussion to say, excuse me, I'm just going to check point number three on my list so I know what to do next. Uh, I'm also very aware that with this stuff, a lot of it is outside of our control. Um, and so there are things that will happen that will just happen. At the same time, um, you know, someone who's not very good at cooking, what I find helpful is for someone to give me a recipe, a step-by-step guide for how to do this. And if I, if I have a little thing I can follow, generally that means the food doesn't taste absolutely horrific. Um, and obviously, as we get better and as we learn to understand the flavors in cooking, then we need to follow the point-by-point thing a little bit less, and we're just able to pick what's needed now. And so I'm going to throw these five things out there uh, with all of those caveats, but I've still found this to be really helpful as I've looked at it. So we're looking at how do we resolve conflict or how do we deal with tension. Uh, Point number one, we start with our own hearts. We start with our own hearts. So Jesus, 
in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, says, talk about handling conflict. He says, you brood of vipers. Uh, he was a rhino, maybe. Uh, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the ma- Here's this key line. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. He's saying that there is a direct channel from your heart to your mouth. And so in dealing with conflict, one of the first things we need to understand is that that if we want to do it in a healthy way, uh, uh, in a way that is for the other person, we need to check what's going on in our own hearts. Somewhere along the line, what many of us pick up, I know this is true of me, is that in relationships we have a choice of either being truthful or being kind. And we separate those two things. And that might have begun at a very early age. Maybe when grandma came up to you uh, one Christmas and said, hey, do you like my Brussels sprout stew? And you were a five-year-old child, so you gave the honest answer. No, it tastes disgusting. And then grandma's face crumpled up and she ran off into the kitchen and you heard wailing coming from there. And it dawned on you, even as a five-year-old child, that when grandma said, do you like my stew? It was another way of her saying, do you like me? And you, uh, you begin to kind of pick up this thing of, oh, okay, so, so I've got a choice. Either I can be honest with this person or I can be kind to this person, but I can't do both of those things. So we end up allowing ourselves to believe that, that we've got a choice. And it's actually been called a fool's choice because it's not true. But we think we've got a choice. I can either be the parent that they like or I can be the parent that calls them on stuff. I can either, be, uh, I can either keep this friendship and maintain it or I can share with my friend what I'm concerned about in their lives. I can either have a good relationship with my colleagues or I can be the person who says it how it is in the office. But we think that there's a choice between those two. And actually what we find in Scripture is that there is a way to both care for a person and confront a person. And in fact, if we're not willing to confront a person, it's because we don't care enough. But if we're going to have that as a heart posture when we approach a conversation, our hearts have to be genuinely for that person. And that is so much easier said than done, especially when someone's done something horrible to us and all we want to do is find them and headbutt them. So how do we do that? I remember um, Mike talking about David Pitchers, who's the vicar of St. Andrew's Chorley Wood, the church from which this church was planted. And inevitably, when you're in any role in leadership... um, People aren't happy with you. That's kind of what happens sometimes and uh, in churches that, that's no different. And so David would get letters of complaint about the church and about his leadership style. And uh, he'd obviously have to respond to those. And Mike told me that he developed a little habit, a way of dealing with that well. And this was his, this was his strategy. What he would do is he would write a letter uh, in response to the letter that he'd received. And he'd write initially in the first draft everything he wanted to say to this person like a no holds bars I am gonna tell you exactly what I think of you right he'd write this whole thing out and then he'd ask his wife to come and sit down and he would read to her the letter that he wanted to send to this person then once he'd read it he would screw up the letter throw it in the bin and that was his way of trying to get his heart right and then he would write um, uh, perhaps a more appropriate letter And now, obviously, today it's not really letters, it's emails. There is a a slight danger with an email that you'll press send instead of delete. So think carefully if that's what you're going to do. But I need to find a way um, of as much as possible through prayer and through venting to to people who I trust about the situation. So that when I enter a conversation, that my heart is for you. 
Because if it is, then out of the overflow of my heart, I will speak. But if I just want to get one over on you, if I want to humiliate you, if I want to prove myself and make myself feel better by making you feel small, we're, all, we're going to go downhill from there. So start with our own hearts. Second thing that's helpful is uh, to recognize that in this kind of resolution of conflict within relationships, um, we are to initiate it. We're to initiate resolving it. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Uh, He doesn't say blessed are those who avoid conflict. That's me. Uh, He doesn't say blessed are those who just like peace. It's very nice when it's peaceful. What he says are blessed are those who make peace. And part of being a peacemaker um, I've discovered, and I hate this, about what we're, what we're meant to do, is that we have to, we have to make the first move. And uh, it just feels, doesn't it, when somebody's done something terrible to us, so unfair that we would have to be the person who then initiates reconciliation with them. Because what I want to do is I want to say, well, when this person is sorry, they'll come to me and they'll make the first move because this is their fault. But, but actually what we're told is we're to be the people who make the first move. And Jesus goes on, he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. The reason that follows on from blessed are the peacemakers is because our father is a peacemaker. And so when we seek to make peace with those around us, we resemble him to the world around us. In uh, the parable of the prodigal, when you have the the story of the father with both sons, he's the one who initiates. Yes, the younger son decides to come home, but the father runs at him. And it's the father who's initiating making peace. The older son won't come into the house. And so the father humbles himself to go out to the house to try and make peace. So we become like God. We've been singing it earlier. He crossed the divide. He came to us. He gave his life on a cross and allowed himself to be buried in a tomb for peace, for reconciliation. So for us, as much as we don't like it, what we see in scripture is that we're to initiate it. Man, that's hard. And so as part of that, what we can do is ask him for courage. I know for me, a big reason I avoid these things is I'm afraid. Another thing we can do is ask him for wisdom. How should I do this, Lord? I know I need to, but I don't know how. How? And another thing I do all the time when I know I've got to have a difficult conversation with someone is I'll ask someone else for wisdom. Not, not, I won't talk about it to many people, but to one or two people, I will go and I will say, can you give me some advice? How might I go about this well? So we initiate. Number three, um, when we begin these conversations, begin with, what is my fault? What is my fault? And as I've looked again at how to handle conflict in a healthy way, it's dawned on me, no wonder I find it so hard. So he's saying, first of all, I've got to get my heart right. Second of all, I've got, to, uh, I've got to initiate it when they're the one that did the problem half the time. Thirdly, I've got to start with what is my fault. When are we going to get to the idiot that I'm having the conflict with? Like, when are we going to talk about this moron who is my boss? But again, this is how we've got to do it. So... Um, Jesus says it like this, Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 and verse 5, he says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's Jesus for start with you. Start with you, Andy. But really, Lord, they've got so many more issues. Okay, well, let's, let's just start with you. Maybe it's 99.9% their fault. 
But there must be something, Andy, that you can confess. And uh, you don't know me, Lord. No, there's nothing. No, no, there must be something. So when we're having a difficult conversation, again, this wouldn't be right, you know, for the youth leader who called me on something. It wasn't that he had to begin with what his, was his fault. But when, when we're having a discussion and there's an area of tension in our relationship, let's say, you know, we're talking as a couple about how do we handle money, or we're talking about an issue we've got in our sex life, or we're talking about uh, how do we raise our kids, or, or what do we do about the in-laws, then the place to begin is what is my fault here? How, what have I contributed to this problem? We're having a conversation with our, our flatmate about uh, how we leave the house. What is my fault in that, in that uh, situation? You're having a conversation with a teenager about the time they got back last night. What is my fault in this situation? And, and what have I contributed? Even if it is something like perhaps I have been unclear. Um, maybe I've had unrealistic expectations. Maybe I've been insensitive without realizing it. Maybe I've been oversensitive. But what's my fault? Then number four. This is the next thing we do, and again, this is, this is um, easier said than done. We listen to where they're coming from. So everything in me, once I've said, this is what my fault is, wants to then go on to, and here's what your fault is. Right? And, uh, and yet, what I think is a much healthier way to do it is to listen. So James, in chapter 1, verse 19, puts it like this. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. It's the quick, slow, slow of being a follower of Jesus. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. And um, listening and learning to do that well, again, I've been finding out that this is a real skill that we can develop. It's fascinating that in terms of the four mediums of communication, reading and writing, speaking and listening, we train kids from a young age in three out of four of those things. We train them to speak, we train them to write, we train them to read, but not to listen in the same way. So when I think of training my kids to listen, what I'm really getting at is I want you to put your shoes on the first time I ask you, not the fifth time I ask you, right? Listen to me. All I really mean by that is do what I'm telling you to do when I ask you to do it. But, but that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about listening here. Many of us, um, and I've realized, unfortunately, I am 100% in this category. Many of us, the way that we do listening, because we've never been taught anything else, is I'm just, I'm, when you're speaking to me, I'm really just waiting for you to finish so that I can reply. So I've already got all the things I'm going to say to you. And I'm just like, okay, yeah, yeah, I know where you're going. I'm waiting for you to finish so that I can reply. And having that as an attitude in, in a difficult conversation where opinions are, are different and emotions are running high and the stakes are high uh, often means we can go off in the wrong direction. And so we want to, if we can, develop the skill and the ability to listen, not so that I can pick up pick a hole in your argument and exploit a weakness there, not so that I can um, say something that's going to be like, ha ha, I win, but I want to listen to you, and here's here's the real trick, just in order to understand you. I want to listen so that I can genuinely understand where you're coming from, not just on an intellectual level, but on an emotional level too. And so to do that well, we've got to learn not just to listen with our ears, but also with our eyes too. 
a huge amount of communication is body language. You know, and you can see if you just mute the television, you've got all these people doing stuff on there. You can still tell a little bit what's going on. A huge amount of communication is body language. I want to I listen with my eyes. I also want to listen to with my heart. What is the emotion that you're expressing to me right now? Do I understand that? Can I, can I, can I imagine myself into feeling that? And if we learn to listen well in this kind of way, there is a tremendous power that, that flows from that and for all sorts of reasons. Um, I remember when my third, uh, third boy, Caleb, who's going through a major heart operation uh, as, a, as a two-month-old baby, and I, I was dealing with a lot of anger, a lot of doubt, a lot of fear as a consequence of that. And I used to ring Mike um, regularly and just chat. And this wasn't a conflict resolution thing. This was just we would talk. Um, but, but we'd talk on the phone, and he, I would, he'd just say, how you doing? And I would just press go. <laughs> and I would just express it all. Like, yeah, I'm frustrated, I'm scared, you know, I'm so cross. Why is this happening to us? I don't understand. He would listen to me. And um, the, one of the ways I knew he, he, he understood is because he didn't try to fix the problem with a simple, trite statement. What he would say to me, once I'd given vent to everything I was feeling, is he would say to me, Andy, I'm not his dad, so I can't, I know, you know, I don't feel it like you feel it, but I I can imagine and I feel it a little bit in part how afraid you must be. You know, I understand why you're so confused in this moment, and I get that you're angry, like, you know, I understand that. And we'd put the phone down, and nothing had changed in Caleb's situation. He still had the heart condition. Um... But something had lifted in me. There was a lightness in me. And, and the reason for that is because I put the phone down. And honestly, it was, it was like somebody gets it. Somebody understands where I'm coming from. And the reason this is so powerful when we're dealing with tension and conflict and, and stuff that can be difficult in relationships is because the longing of the other person that we're talking to is the exact same longing that there is in us. They want someone, just like we want someone, who gets them, who understands it. That, and that doesn't mean agree with. It doesn't mean to say, okay, I'm listening and I'm just agreeing with everything you're saying. What it means is I understand what it's like to be like that as far as I'm able to. And we reflect that to them. Um, I remember Joe Turner, who's over there. We were talking uh, just, just last week. She's a trained counsellor. So I was picking her brains about listening. And she, she was saying to me, there was this one time where she parked her car on one of these streets where um, parents do that when they're picking up their kids. So the streets often in Watford get full of cars and everybody gets annoyed. And she said this guy came out of the house who was clearly really had it up to here with people parking near his driveway. And she could see him walking down the pavement towards her and having a go at everybody who'd parked their car on the street. But Joe is a trained counsellor and she understands the power of listening. And she had a bit of warning to prepare herself because she could see him coming. So she just decided, I'm just going to listen to him. Whatever he says, I'm just going to be there and I'm just going to listen. And he got up to her and he started going off on one and he was super angry with these people parking on the street. And she just stood there and she just took it. She just absorbed it. And she, she just said, I understand. It must be so frustrating for you. He was an elderly guy. And she said when she showed that she'd heard him and that she got what he was saying, not just here, but here, she said it was like a balloon just deflated in front of her. 
suddenly all the anger just went out of him. And this is so powerful, not just because then people feel heard, but then also it means we can understand what is really going on in the dynamic and address what is genuinely happening, not what we assume is happening. Because we assume everybody else is just like us. And I find this with fear. You know, I'm afraid of things. But the things that I'm afraid of make rational sense. And it's perfectly normal that I would be afraid of them. The things that some of you people are afraid of make no sense whatsoever. They're completely bizarre. I don't know why they scare you. But of course, that's because I'm coming from my perspective and you're coming from yours. And I want to know where you're at so that we can talk about where you're actually at, not where I've assumed you're at. So listen well. And then finally, speak the truth tactfully. Speak the truth tactfully. So told in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Somebody else said once, words can be bullets or they can be seeds. Words can bring death or they can bring life. And when it comes to this, uh, we're going to share honestly what we're struggling with and why we want to challenge them or what it is that we want to resolve. We do need to be clear and we do need to be honest. Um, To say it well is not to uh, pull our punches or to fudge it. We have to tell them what's going on. And the reason for that is having listened and understood where they're coming from. Unless we say clearly and honestly, this is where we're coming from and this is why we find it hard. What will happen is we will leave the conversation feeling dissatisfied because we'll have heard them, but we won't feel like they've heard us and we haven't expressed ourselves well. So we do need to be honest, but at the same time recognize that there's a way of being honest that will mean they're able to hear us or more likely to hear us. And there's a way of being honest that sets us up to fail. Um, And and again, I've just made so many mistakes in this area. Most of the time, I am a moody, spiky hedgehog. But occasionally, over the years, I can look back and I can think, there was definitely one or two times when I decided that I was going to become a rhino. And um, I remember just not long after I started working in a position of leadership, I had a, a, a problem I needed to raise with somebody where their behavior wasn't right. And I had to psych myself up to doing it because I don't like confrontation. So I didn't exactly watch Rocky Balboa uh, or five films, but it was kind of that vibe. So I got myself super psyched up. I did it over the phone, which was a bad start. And uh, this person, this poor person picked up uh, the phone on me and I just went for them and uh, told them all this stuff and then put the phone down, feeling, to be perfectly honest, pretty pleased with myself. Because I was like, well, normally I'm terrible at dealing with conflict. I've obviously just dealt with it brilliantly because I've told them everything. And uh, I was at my house at the time, and I remember going downstairs, and Beth was downstairs. She hadn't helped but overhear the conversation. She was shocked, and she said, who was on the other end of the phone? Um, You need to call them back now. And I was like, no, I've just done that brilliantly. And I realized very quickly I'd just done it terribly. It's just been the opposite way of terrible from what I normally did. Uh, And I've since since, uh, had to talk to that person, and I've had to ask them to forgive me. And and what I've discovered is there's a way of sharing truth that that sets people up to receive it better. How then? How do you do that? Here's Here's a few things. First of all, as much as possible, to do it calmly. Someone once said to me, the person who stays calmest the longest in the debate wins. And this isn't about winning. But that principle of being calm is really important. We never get our point across by being cross. 
The moment we become uh, abrasive, we stop being persuasive. So it's doing, if we start, yeah, when we're yelling at the kids, they hear the emotion. They don't hear the words or the point that we're trying to make. However right, of course, we always are. Um, that's not what they're hearing anymore. So being calm is important. And then there are ways of presenting things that feel perhaps a little artificial to us at first, but that genuinely are helpful and they genuinely work. And here's one that I've, I've discovered. Um, it's, it's when we're sharing something, rather than making it about the other person that we're attacking because of how terrible they can be, it's helpful to focus on us and to focus on me. So rather than saying to somebody, you don't ever do the washing up because you are so selfish and lazy, we can instead say what, what, how we feel when we experience this behavior. So with that one, we might say, when you don't do the washing up, it makes me feel like you don't care. Or it makes me feel um, like I'm pulling my weight and, and you're not. Uh, rather than saying to somebody, you are a terrible friend because you didn't get back to me when I texted you in my hour of need, we can say uh, instead, when you don't get back to me, just so you know, when you don't get back to me in moments like that, this is how I end up feeling. I feel isolated and I feel alone and I feel like you don't care. Um, it makes me feel. Another thing that Beth and I have been doing recently is um, having, if we can, when we come to sort of challenge the other person on something, kind of like a heart posture of curiosity. Like we're asking it as a question, but the point is not it's a technique. We're genuinely trying to be curious. And so um, often on our date nights, we'll just take 10 minutes to go through a few questions that we find helpful to ask each other regularly. So, so we would say things like, one thing I appreciate about you is this, and we'll tell the other person. We'll say, um, you know, something you might not know is, is this happened to me this week. And then there's another one which we got from somewhere which where we say, um, one thing that puzzles me is... And we're doing it kind of tongue-in-cheek half the time, but genuinely we find it helpful. So, so rather than accusing the other person of something, we might say something like, it puzzles me because I thought we bought that bar of chocolate to share with each other. <laughs> and I'm curious, um, do we have mice? And I'm genuinely wanting to know the answer to my question. And so that for us has been such a helpful way of, you know, Beth might say something to me, oh, Andy, I'm, I'm puzzled because I know you like living in a warm house and you don't want us to waste loads of money on heating. But every time you go out of the back door, you leave it wide open for about 15 minutes. And I'm just curious what you think is going to happen if you keep doing that. Um, and so that, that for us, suddenly it's like the flow of dialogue opens up. So that's another helpful way of doing it. And here's, a, here's another one that we found quite useful. It's this little line that I've got from Brené Brown. Uh, I, I, I talked about it a few months ago, but it's, it's um, to start with, the story I'm telling myself is. And what Brené Brown says on this is she says, often we, we, um, we have an experience in a relationship and it triggers for us a reaction that isn't based necessarily on what's happened, but we all tell ourselves stories. So an example might be you go into the office and your boss really snaps at you one day and, uh, and then disappears. And what we can start to do is we can start to think, oh, they're really cross with me because of what happened at the work do two weeks ago. They haven't got over that. And so they're, they're harboring resentment against me. Or you might go into a room and you, um, you know, you, somebody blanks you. Uh, at a party or something like that. And we can start to tell ourselves a story. They've never liked me. 
And the reason they don't like me is because I never uh, went around for dinner when they invited me. I was never very good at getting back to them. So we go off on this whole story. And that might be true, but, but at that point, we're just speculating. But such is the power of our ability to tell ourselves these stories that we can end up going way down the tracks based on just one brief exchange. And I found this a really helpful way of addressing some of the areas of tension in my own relationships. And so to give you an example, not last Christmas, but the Christmas before, um, Beth and I, we were staying with my, my parents. And um, I can remember there was this one evening where we were all kind of having like a family board game night together. And Beth was having the time of her life, right? Beth is an extrovert times 20. I'm an introvert. She was having the time of her life. She was laughing like I hadn't seen her laugh for ages. And, um, and you would think that as a faithful, loving and devoted husband, I would be pleased about that. Well, I, I, I remember what happened is this little feeling of insecurity came up in me. And I thought, I can't remember the last time I've seen her laughing like that. I've cracked quite a lot of what I think to be hilarious jokes uh, in the last week. And she didn't find any of them funny. And and now here she is having such a blast. And, And then, of course, I start, then what happens is I start telling myself this story. Oh, gosh, she probably wishes she'd married someone who is a bit more of an extrovert, a bit different from me. She seems to come alive in these situations. And when we're together, it doesn't seem like it's like that some of the time. And, um, and then I did what a moody, spiky hedgehog would do, is I, I said, I'm going to bed. And it was my way of testing her. Is this true? This is how I'll test this narrative. If, if she really loves me, she'll come to bed now. And if she doesn't, she won't. And she said, see ya. So I went upstairs, and I'm in the room, and this is like, I'm now really, really sort of in this. I've gone down the rabbit hole, and I'm thinking like this is, you know, she, and I'm thinking of all these people she probably would have rather married, and I start thinking about all this other stuff, and so I get in a proper stew. And so by the time Beth comes up, who, by the way, has done nothing wrong, all right, apart from enjoy a family board game with my family, her in-laws, she's done nothing wrong. She comes upstairs. By the time she comes upstairs, I am fuming inside, but I I have realized that it's probably not a good idea to be in that place and just give her both barrels as righteously right as of course I am that her behavior is completely unacceptable and so I keep a lid on it keep my mouth shut and I go to sleep and um and then I, the next morning we were driving home and the kids were asleep in the back of the car and this Brené Brown thing I'd, I'd heard about this maybe just try and think about what's the story you're telling yourself so rather than just attack the person maybe approach it with that so that's what I tried And I said to her, and I was scared to say it because no one likes to be vulnerable, but I said to her, look, Beth, um, you might not know this, but um, the story I'm telling myself is that you're tired of me and that maybe you don't love me as much as you used to and that maybe you wish you'd married somebody more fun and that we don't have a good time together anymore. And I said that to Beth. It's always good to have these conversations when someone's driving. Um, because they can't get away from you. And not that she wanted to, because she was just totally shocked. She was shocked that that's where I'd been. And for me, that emotion was so overpowering at that point. And she just said, Andy, I love you. What are you talking about? I was just hanging out with your family. And then we had this whole discussion about how we're different from each other and how, for me, quality time tends to be one-on-one. And for her, it's possible to have quality time in a big group of people and that's how she approaches things but we end up having this really profound fruitful discussion that means our relationship gets stronger and I'm so grateful that I discovered a way of sharing that truth that actually meant we could have a healthy discussion rather than just begin to attack each other
Final thought, and then we finish, is um, what if none of this works? Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says this. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody else. Now, of course, we have to recognize that um, we're broken, other people are broken, and things can't get resolved always overnight. Um, And so that's the impetus for us. That's what I found helpful about that final verse, is I can choose my own response. I can't choose yours. I can control mine. And so as far as it depends on me, I want to live like this, that we might make peace. Amen? Amen. That was just so helpful. Absolutely wonderful. I just want to very quickly, I know time's out, band come up now um, while I say this, just to add one little thing um, that, again, that I've learned. It's, um, you know, when we're saying something to someone and we're being honest, um, often what we do is we say, I really love you, but there's this. And what people hear when we say it like that, it's, I love you, but then there's the but. And it's the bit at the end that we remember. The but is, this is, this is conditional. This is, you know, there's a but to this. But a whole different way of doing it is saying, there's this that I struggle with. There's this, but I love you. It makes all the difference where you put your butt.